Welcome to this week's Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Taha Lokandwala, Deputy Personal Finance Editor, and joining me today are Emma Ajaman, Personal Finance Writer. Hi Emma, how are we doing? Hi, good thanks, you? And Dan Kemp, Chief Investment Officer at Morningstar in Europe. Hi Dan, how are we doing? Hello, very well, thank you. Excellent. Um, so it's been a, been an interesting week in terms of the news for markets and investors. Uh, we've had some big topics. We've had inflation come out in the UK and uh, the Turkish currency. Obviously, I'm sure a lot of people have seen a lot of coverage of that. Um, the inflation was interesting for a couple of reasons. One, the July figures are used by the government to uh, increase things like rail fares. But also, it's the first time the inflation figure has actually risen uh, month on month in eight months. So the consumer prices index was 2.5% last month compared to 2.4% in June. Obviously, people might find this quite panicking, but um, let's not. Uh, according to the ONS, the Office of National Statistics, who uh, provide the figures, this was entirely down to a rise in the price of video games. In fact, you take this out, the inflation figure was exactly the same as it was in June, which is quite bizarre. If you break this figure down, there's a figure called core inflation, uh, and this takes out volatile items. Uh, and that stayed the same at 1.9%, and core goods inflation, which takes out services, um, was 1.2%. That last figure actually is trending downwards because sterling uh, depreciation is falling out of the measurement period. Um, so actually, there's some economists that think this could be fall below 2% by the, by next year, which would be quite interesting. Dan, the inflation stat seems a bit muddled at the moment. Headline figures going up, underline figures going down. How do we um, How do we make sense of this? Well, I think the first thing to do is remember that uh, the long-term impact of inflation is actually much more important than the month-to-month changes. The, the month-to-month is much more vivid to us uh, as we try and make sense of uh, what that might mean for longer-term trend. But uh, from an investment perspective, people really need to think about the impact of inflation over the long term. And the, the first thing uh, to remember as you look at these figures is that uh, inflation is higher on all these measures than the return you can get either in the bank at the moment or even from something like a 10-year government bond, which is most people's benchmark low-risk investment. And so what that means is that if people are saving, if people are uh, investing in the what they would think of as the lowest-risk way, uh, they're actually likely to lose money uh, month on month. And so inflation is the enemy of all uh, long-term investors. It's really the hurdle that everyone has to overcome. And so it's not so much the absolute level of inflation, but it's the level of inflation relative to the return that you could get in low-risk investments. Okay. Um, obviously, the the one thing that people use inflation for the most is to kind of guess the trajectory of uh, central bank interest rates. Um, we had a, a rise quite recently. Um, so does this, what are these kind of figures, so what are these July figures tell us about what we might see from the Bank of England going forward? Well, the Bank of England uh, has suggested that interest rates will be rising modestly into the future. Uh, their crystal ball is not terribly clear, and neither is the crystal ball of most financial commentators either. Uh, and so really, I think less about trying to predict what's going to happen in the future, uh, and more trying to protect yourselves from some of those bad possible outcomes. And so where most people make a mistake is uh, think about one possible outcome. Uh, but really what investors should be doing is thinking about that range of possible outcomes. And that's normally much wider uh, than you see in people's predictions. And so we could have a situation from here where we descend back into a deflationary environment. There's a lot of potential uh, economic headwinds ahead with, with Brexit and all these other things that we know about. Uh, but equally, uh, when we think about the impact on 
uh, sterling, when we think about uh, the fact that central banks have been reluctant to be really aggressive on interest rates, uh, we could see much higher inflation ahead. And the, the challenge for investors, again, is that we're so uh, focused on what's happened in the recent past uh, that we tend to struggle to think long term. And it's not that long ago that interest rates uh, were deep into double figures, as were mortgage rates. And so you have to think about that range of outcomes rather than focusing on one particular forecast. Okay, and that, that's an interesting point. But um, in terms of how we kind of think about this with our own portfolios, um, what should we be thinking about now then? Do you, Obviously, we have to think about a range of outcomes, but we have to think about inflation hedging or whether we should be focusing on growth and stuff like that. So how would you, how would you see yourself positioning your portfolio right now? Absolutely. I think that's the key question, obviously, for, for all investors. And again, the danger is that by the time something uh, is becoming obvious in terms of a risk, then normally the price of insuring against that risk is much higher. Uh, and so when uh, inflation's in the headlines, then the uh, price of protecting inflation uh, is normally pretty unattractive. The first thing we need to look at is the valuation of assets, uh, all assets, and really valuation should act as every investor's uh, Compass. Uh, that's what's going to lead you into good returns. And when we look at the valuation of most asset classes, uh, there's very few things where we'd expect uh, a meaningful um, return above inflation uh, from the current level. And that should make us all a little bit more cautious uh, than we'd normally be. But then second, when we're thinking about uh, protecting against inflation, uh, then normally uh, government bonds are a bad uh, place to be. Uh, and even inflation-linked government bonds, uh, so index-linked gilts, as we call them in the in the UK, uh, they look to be very overpriced to us as investors at the moment. And so, as with so many aspects of investment, uh, the important thing is uh, to get beyond that first-level thinking of, uh, if there's inflation risk, we must buy uh, index-linked gilts, uh, and really look beyond that into the valuations and really that range of possible outcomes as well. And so when we're looking at portfolios, we see uh, equity assets, particularly UK equity assets, uh, as more attractive than many other markets, particularly the US equity market looks very expensive to us. Uh, and so again, that can be a source of uh, long term uh, growth. Uh, and then secondly, in terms of uh, bond markets to balance the equity exposure, uh, then we would see the US bond market, uh, where rates are much higher because people are more concerned about the direction of interest rates, uh, as to be more attractive than the UK market. And so I'd encourage all investors to just look beyond the assets that maybe you're most familiar with uh, and really take a, a broader view of the market. Those two assets that you just mentioned, are we, are we likely to see above inflation returns from both of them uh, over the long term? Well, with uh, U.S. Uh, bonds, then we see them delivering returns around about an expected inflation rate. Uh, the drawback is, of course, you have to be very careful about the cost of your investment uh, as well as the tax. That can really act as a, as a drag as well. With U.K. equities, on the other, other hand, uh, then we see really quite attractive returns from U.K. equity markets. Again, with Brexit and all the other things that are going on, uh, people are um, tending to ignore uh, UK shares, but actually, uh, from a valuation perspective, they look attractive to us. Okay, great. Um, as I mentioned, the other thing in the news this week was Turkey. Well, it seems a bit crazy, to be honest with you. There was a huge currency depreciation. Uh, central bank and the government had to step in and stop this. It seems like quite a complex situation, Dan. Could you perhaps um, give us a summary on what you think is going on over there? 
It certainly is a complex situation, and it reflects the fact that uh, Turkey's been having some pretty severe economic challenges for a little while. Inflation's very high there, as we know, and uh, interest rates are, are fairly high, but uh, not quelling inflation. And as we all remember from the fallout after the Brexit vote, then actually when your currency uh, depreciates, that tends to increase inflation as, as well. And this, of course, more recently has been exacerbated by uh, this, uh, this spat with Washington. So... Uh, there's lots of bad headlines around, and there's some challenges at that uh, fundamental level. Uh, but as long-term valuation-driven investors, that's when we start to get really excited. Uh, when everyone else is getting really concerned, that's the time that we tend to get a bit more interested. And so we certainly haven't finished the work uh, on uh, Turkish assets to, to check whether they really do offer good long-term value, but that's something that we're engaged with at the moment. But remember, it's a very niche market. It's probably not appropriate for most investors. So one of the things that you could think about is uh, the fallout of uh, the, the problems in Turkey on the broader emerging market asset classes. A lot of investors will have exposure to emerging market funds, whether they're bonds or equities. Uh, and actually, you sometimes get contagion effects uh, when you have a crisis in one part of the emerging world. And so it may be that while Turkey is not investable for most people, it may not even be that attractive when you do the research, uh, you may find that other parts of the emerging world which don't have a direct link but nevertheless have been affected by bad sentiment uh, could offer some opportunities. Ah, excellent. That's good to know. Um, I uh, did, did a bit of work on the funds. So yeah, it looks as if um, equity funds uh, aren't that actually exposed to Turkey, but there's some uh, emerging market debt funds that do um, have got some significant exposure, so it'll be interesting to see how well they recover. Okay, so moving on. Uh, another headline-grabbing investment recently was peer-to-peer -peer lending. Um, this is where investors lend capital to other people or small businesses who don't want to borrow from banks. So this gives uh, people who don't want to use banks another source of capital, and it gives investors another way to lend their money and get higher returns and yields. But So this is definitely high risk, but then uh, there's always the rewards to match. Or are there? Emma, the uh, FCA, the Financial Conduct Authority, which is the financial services regulator, has been taking a look at P2P lending and the platforms that allow investors to do this. Um, doesn't seem like they're entirely happy uh, what's going on there. Yes, that's right, Tara. So as you're saying, peer-to-peer -peer is basically when people use a platform to lend money to borrowers, and that can be businesses or individuals. But the industry has got a lot more complex from when it first began about a decade ago. When it first began, most platforms tended to be um, what the FCA is calling conduit individuals, basically conduit platforms rather, where individuals could select their own loans and the rate, interest rate was set between borrowers and investors. But as time has gone on, platforms have started to get into the pricing of individual loans and um, the big free platforms, along with many others, are offering a kind of discretionary model where basically the platform sets the interest rates and also picks the loans that individual investors are exposed to. And the essay is worried that basically people don't really understand how important a platform's ability to kind of manage risk and um, to manage people's portfolios is to the individual returns that investors get. And the other big thing about this industry is that it's not actually protected by the Financial Services Compensation Scheme. So the FCA is also concerned that people might be overexposed to P2P, not really understanding the potential risks, um, and not recognising that if you know the worst were to happen and their platform went bust, they wouldn't have any kind of protection under the FSCS. So that's one major concern. The other thing 
that the FCA was concerned about is that once they looked at the industry, they also found examples of poor business practices. So, for example, some platforms um, didn't really have very good credit risk assessments. Those platforms that are picking loans for individual investors, um, in some cases, the interest rate that they set on the loan didn't actually reflect the borrower risk, which is pretty basic. Another issue was that there was poor disclosure of information by platforms to investors. So that made it harder for the investors to be able to understand what the proposition of the platform is. And for those platforms that allow investors to pick loans, it made it harder for investors to actually make good investment decisions. So basically, I mean, there's a range of issues that the SCA has found out. And I suppose the key message is that investors do need to be more careful about P2P. Wow, that's um, that is a long list of problems that you have there. <laughs> it really um, is. But yeah. yeah, it seems like it's also from both sides. So you've got some some kind of corporate problems from the platforms, but also I think the FCA sounds as if they're they're quite worried about investors not really sure that they know what they're doing. Obviously, that doesn't apply to all investors, but as a whole, it seems like many of them might be taking a bit too much risk in their portfolios. So some interesting things to come out from that. It's not entirely positive for an up and coming sector, which is is it's an interesting sector because it's given two sets of people different ways to do things you know it's bypass the banks for people who want to take you know quick quick startup money and business stuff like that but yeah it's you know some of the yields that i think we've seen um on offer have, have been relatively attractive especially in the recent environment yeah definitely but has the fca got some some ways it wants to go about fixing this so yes the fca um has come up with a consultation where they're looking at several measures which they think um could improve the industry and a sort of quite controversial measure they're, they're considering is actually restricting the advertising of peer-to-peer to specific investors. So right now, anybody can go onto a platform, invest how much they want to invest in any of these platforms. But the regulator suggesting that P2P should only really be available to high net worth investors, wealthy investors, people who self-certify as sophisticated investors, or investors who are using a financial advisor or people who will say that they're only going to put 10% of their net worth into P2P. And actually, that could be an issue because when this, when the FCA looked at the, um, the industry, they looked at a survey of P2P investors and they found that something like um, 40% of people had invested more than a year's income into P2P in that year. Oh, wow. That's, I mean, that's... That's a lot. Yeah, like, that does sound like some people might be a little overexposed. Um, so, so that's anyway. That, that's one of the measures that the SEA is bringing in. The other thing on the platform side of things is that the regulators wanting to prescribe the amount of risk and the sort of framework that platforms use to assess risk. Um, so they're being very prescriptive about what they should look for, um, what kind of information they should collect, and to just make that very tight so that platforms have to meet that those outcomes and finally discretionary and pricing platforms um, will have to kind of show investors produce a statement to investors as to how successful they were in actually achieving the target return they've set and they'll have to do that every year to explain to investors what they've done what the the default rates were and how successful they were at that achieving their aims so yeah boosting boosting standards from both sides um hopefully in that sense but you know it's um restricting investors is never something investors like especially the ones who you know believe in <laughs> i assume most investors do believe they know what they're doing but yeah especially the ones that you know that, that are relatively sophisticated um sounds as if they still might be able to do it as long as they just kind of make sure that they declare that they're aware of the risks so probably... yeah but i mean arguably you could argue that 
you know, the SCA's found all these problems with platforms and they've come up with a range of solutions and maybe they should just you know, allow time for those solutions to, to bed down rather than restricting investors. So you, but it says, you, know, there's, you can make the points either way. No, absolutely. Yeah, I, I think yeah, we we were chatting about this when we you know if the if the platforms are doing bad things, why why are we talking to the investors? We should mm. be talking to the platforms. So how what, what's the timeline on this? When should P two P investors expect some changes? Well, as I say, there's a consultation out at the moment, and I think that's due to end at the end of October. Um, if all of these measures are accepted as they currently are, which is obviously no guarantee to that, um, but if they are, the SA plans to bring in new rules about you know six months after that so we're looking at spring next year okay excellent uh it's worth noting um listeners that you are welcome to respond to that consultation for the details please see this week's magazine or the website if you have views on this um i thoroughly recommend that you do speak to the fca and share your thoughts dan what what are your thoughts on the p2p market and the study well i think the P2P market is based on some uh, very interesting principles. Uh, and uh, as you said, Emma, fills a, a gap where uh, we've had a situation in the last 10 years following the financial crisis where banks haven't wanted to lend uh, to as many customers as before. They've been uh, shrinking their balance sheets in many cases. Uh, and equally, savers have struggled to get a good rate of interest on their savings. And so uh, putting those two together makes a lot of sense. At the same time, there's been some interesting studies shown that if you have a direct link between uh, the lender and the borrower, uh, a direct personal link, uh, that that tends to reduce default rates as well. So there's some really interesting principles in the peer-to-peer market, but it is new. Uh, and new markets, uh, poorly regulated markets, uh, are always um, a little bit challenging for investors and, and open to problems. So I'm really encouraged that the FCA is showing some interest uh, in this. Uh, again, uh, they they need to uh, take the right uh, level of um, of approach. They don't want to take a sledgehammer to crack a nut, but equally, uh, their job is to protect consumers, and so it's great that they're they're doing it. I think the the key thing uh, to remember for anyone thinking about P two P or crowdfunding uh, is to remember that it is an investment proposition. I think sometimes people can get uh, tangled up with the situations of the person that they're uh, lending to and the, the worthiness of that cause. Sometimes we've seen a lot of uh, crowdfunding for hospital bills in the US, for example, as a, as a different example. So uh, again, sometimes people get uh, tangled up because the uh, person they're lending to, their situation might be quite vivid, uh, and that tends to lead us into uh, in, into odd directions. It is an investment, and one of the great principles of investing, particularly lending, uh, is to have diversification. Uh, you know, you will have some people who, through no f- um, uh, no intention, do default, borrow more. You have bad circumstances, uh, and so for the r- same reason that an insurance company uh, doesn't just uh, underwrite one particular risk, uh, for the same reason that uh, investment managers invest in in different markets and, and different assets, uh, anybody involved in this needs to understand that uh, having sufficient capital to achieve a good level of diversification uh, is incredibly important. Emma, have you got anything else uh, from this study plan? Is there was there anything else to come out of it that was interesting? Well, actually, Dan's point is is really interesting because I'm going to be looking at ways in which investors can protect themselves from some of the risks of P2P in the article I'm working on for next week. And one of those key things is looking at how they can better diversify either across platforms 
or um, you know how effective their own platform is at diversifying them across loans. So yeah, that's something they'll be picking up next week. Great. I look forward to chatting about it then. Thank you. Okay, moving on. Income. Um, income is a fundamental investment objective for so many of us and finding the right funds, the markets, even the stocks to get the right level of income for us is no easy task. Um, the obvious thing we do is look for is look for yield. This gives us a direction on uh, whether that's the right investment for us and how much income we're going to get. And also, um, a lot of people use yield as a measurement of future growth. Some argue this isn't the case. Um, Dan, you uh, happen to be one of those people. So why don't you tell us about what some of your research has shown? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Taha. I, I think the, the, the key is uh, to think about that total portfolio return. Um, now, as, a, um, as an investing uh, public, as a group of investors, uh, we've always focused on dividends as being a key component of return. And, and one of the great things that a dividend does is that it imposes discipline on the management of businesses. If they know they've got to generate enough cash uh, to pay a dividend, uh, then that can be a, a great management tool for making people do the right things. But uh, from an investment perspective, it's not necessarily the main thing to look at. Uh, firstly, dividends can be quite a tax-inefficient way of getting capital back from a company, particularly these days where, uh, as we know, income tax is taxed differently from capital gains tax. Uh, with trading costs now quite low, uh, then it's uh, easy to for many people uh, and low cost to withdraw capital from their uh, portfolios, again, in, in some tax-sheltered products as well. So, uh, again, it used to serve a very uh, clear purpose, um, less so now, particularly with the advent of share buybacks as well and the importance of share buybacks. So what we find is that uh, people tend to judge equity investments on uh, absolute levels of dividend yield. Uh, but of course, dividend yield is also relative to price. Uh, and so y- uh, it may be that a dividend doesn't change, it's just the price of an asset that's that's fallen that increases the, the yield. So remember that yield is a relative measure, but also remember that it is really just one component of return. And if what you're trying to do as an investor is to maximize the return uh, that you receive, then uh, we think you need to separate the investment-making decision, i.e. looking for the best assets, uh, from the way that you convert those returns uh, into something that supports your your lifestyle if you're an income investor. Uh, and so again, we just encourage all investors to look beyond uh, just those headline yields. Uh, sometimes higher headline yields mean higher risk. Uh, sometimes they mean uh, that you're buying something that's less sustainable. Uh, and of course, the, the point of any uh, form of income investing uh, is that it's not a one-off transaction. Uh, you want the income to keep coming in for, for months and years ahead, and so the sustainability. Uh, and as we think about inflation again, also the growth uh, of that yield is all very important. And so look beyond just that headline yield number uh, into some of the, the uh, more uh, encompassing areas of investment. So um, how does this uh, manifest itself then? Um, obviously, the points you made um Kind of a lot of people who chase a high yield then end up falling into things like uh, value traps and then or they miss out on growth. Um, but if we're looking at 
sectors particular of people turn to sectors saying this is a high yielding sector this is a low yielding sector what kind of uh, situations can that lead investors into if they take that approach well one of the things that it can do is it can remove that future growth from a portfolio uh, because a lot of uh, firms that are returning capital to shareholders in the forms of, of dividend and that's essentially what they're doing they're taking part of uh, the money that the firm has and giving it back to their owners uh, they're doing that because they can't uh, invest uh, that capital to deliver a high rate of return. And so they're doing a a very good thing uh, by returning uh, capital they don't need to investors. But when you think about that company uh, as an investment proposition, then really, if you're a long-term investor, you should be thinking about whether uh, that company has opportunities to deploy that that capital uh, more efficiently. And so what it uh, often means, not all the time, but what it often means is that you're getting your capital back because you own a company that can't grow as quickly. Now, the the other side of that, that coin is that uh, there are companies that suck in capital because they're unprofitable and they're spending more money than they can earn back. And that's a risk as well. And so it's important not to take an an absolute uh, view to to, to this. There's no right or wrong answer. But just think of some of the uh, consequences that can come from owning high yield uh, stocks. It might be they're a great bargain uh, because they're underpriced. It might be that they have balance sheet problems. Uh, It might be that the dividend is not sustainable or that they can't deliver the growth that you're looking for as a long-term investor. So all of these things need to come into play when researching individual companies. Okay, is there anything else we need to think about in terms of, obviously, we we turn to different areas and markets for for yields and income. So should we be perhaps thinking about how different uh, markets and sectors are working at the same time when we're we're looking for income? That's absolutely right. And so, uh, again, diversifying the sources of your income is incredibly important. And uh, a lot of people would think about diversifying between bonds and shares, uh, but equally looking at the underlying drivers uh, of those returns is incredibly important. So getting a a dividend from uh, a tech stock uh, is going to be very different from getting a dividend from uh, a telecom stock or from uh, an energy stock, you know, different levels of sustainability. Uh, So again, you're as an investor, you're looking for diversification, not just by by name or by number, but uh, by drivers of the underlying economic returns. And that's why uh, income funds uh, have tended to attract investors, because it provides some level of diversification. Well, that's a, that's a handy uh, thing you mentioned there. So um, as I mentioned, many investors pick income geographically, and there's a range of ways. You can get US income funds, European income funds, global income funds. Of course, the one many of us turn to is UK equity income. It's the most popular and actually accounts for about a tenth of the funds industry. But finding the right fund is quite difficult. There's uh, a lot of things to consider, including what we just spoke to Dan about. But there's always a ranking we can turn to. Uh, Emma, have we got an update on a ranking out there somewhere? Yes, we have. So Sandlum has published its whitelist, which it does twice a year, and it ranks funds based on the yield that they generate, the total income they've paid out, their returns over five years, and how volatile they've been over the last five years. Um, so yeah, handy that we've got this report that's just come out. The fund that topped the list this time was Slater Income Fund, which is run by Mark Slater. And it came out top after taking over the top spot from Mighton UK Multicap Income, um, which was top last time the, the survey came out. And the reason Slater Income has done so well is because it's shown consistent performance 
and a good yield at relatively low volatility. So over the last five years, it's had an annualised return of 9.6% and it's got a yield of 4.4%. That's not too bad. And I think that the Slater Income Fund is quite a popular one with uh, many of our listeners, I'm sure. Obviously, the Might End Fund um, is still a very good fund. It's uh, not necessarily to say that it's bad, but I think this is just um, an excellent performance by Mark Slater there. Were there any other changes in the uh, the rankings that were quite notable? Yeah, what was interesting was that um, value-style investing, um, as we all know, has kind of been walloped by growth over the last 10 years or so. But in the 12 months look that this this survey looked back over, um, value has started to outperform growth. And two funds which take a value style have actually moved up into the whitelist. So they were Schroeder Income and Schroeder Income Maximizer, which is a sister fund of Schroeder Income. Basically, the difference is um, Schroeder Income Maximizer uses derivatives to boost the income payout, while Schroeder Income doesn't. But they both follow um, a value style and they've both moved up into the top list this time. That's interesting to know, especially I think it was a couple of weeks ago we were talking about a new value UK equity income fund as well. So it's interesting to see value doing better. I'm sure many of us who own value funds will be happy about that. Um, were there any funds that Sanlam found some negatives on? Um, any that dropped out the list? Yeah, there were two funds that dropped out of the top performing list. One was Premier Monthly Income Fund. And the reason for that was that it's just been too volatile for the, you know, the, list, the top list this time. And the other was Royal London UK Equity Income, which has had poor performance over the past two years. So that's the reason why that fell out. Great. Thanks for that, Emma. Dan, have you had a look at the Sandland report as well? Was there anything that stood out for you? I did look at the report. I think uh, the thing to remember is that uh, the period that the report looks at uh, is relatively short. Five years uh, isn't a a very long time. It might feel like a long time in markets, but it's really not from an investment perspective. And also, uh, the last five years has been characterised by a relatively stable uh, economic and market environment. Again, it hasn't felt like that sometimes, but it has been uh, really. And so there's always a question in my mind whether any historic survey or any historic performance data uh, is uh, a good indication of what's going to happen in the future. Uh, at its worst, it's like driving a car looking through the rearview mirror. Uh, at its best, then it's likely to provide uh, only a, a basic indication of what's going to happen. And so uh, what uh, we would always recommend uh, investors do is really uh, look at that forward-looking research. Uh, There's a number of key areas that we would point to. So not just the income that's paid out, not just the returns, uh, but the the company that's offering uh, the the fund, uh, you know, the culture, whether they're, 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 as a company, they're good stewards of capital, uh, the quality of the, the manager. There's some great managers on, on this list, uh, you know, people I respect very highly, but also managers change. And so in some instances, uh, the manager that delivered some of these returns may not be the same person that's, that's in the chair now. And so that's something to, uh, to think about. And then also the process that's been uh, used. Uh, sometimes even a bad process uh, can deliver uh, good outcomes uh, over a short time period, and a good out, a good process can deliver bad outcomes. And so investors really need to think about the process that's being used and whether that's likely to deliver good outcomes in the future. Excellent. Thank you very much for that summary. Um, unfortunately, that's all we have time for this week. 
But please don't forget to uh, to read this week's issue, um, either with your magazine or online or via the app, um, and you'll find some more interesting things there on income investing, peer-to-peer lending, some fun tips, and we've also got a feature on how commodities can help diversify your portfolio. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, thank you to Emma and Dan, and have a good weekend. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.